Hello and welcome to episode 35 of One Rep at a Time, your friendly podcast from CultFit. We've spoken on the show many times about the importance of good nutrition for overall fitness and weight loss. And in fact, it was the theme of this week. And to cap things off, I have a very special guest, Krish Ashok. Now, I could go on and on about this man. I've been an ardent follower of his work. Uh, since 2007-2008 or so. He is a hilarious writer, has created several memes, is a musician of quality who also makes brilliant parodies and on top of this he has a pretty senior role at a major IT company. Now you might wonder what any of this has to do with the things we discuss on this podcast like fitness, eating well Uh, and that's where Ashok's latest little, I want to say hobby or interest comes into the picture. In 2020, Ashok wrote a fabulous, delightful book called Masala Lab, The Science of Indian Cooking. Now, while the title might make like while the title might make it seem like it's all about science and the technical aspects of what goes into the kitchen, and while that is certainly there, what really sets the book apart and really Ashok's thinking apart is how it kind of opens up your eyes to various things that happen in the kitchen and what really goes on in your food before cooking, during cooking, during digestion, he breaks down a lot of myths, goes into first principles, which I absolutely love and so on. For example, one of my favorite theories of his is that there is no such thing as authentic food. Everything that is authentic today is, you know, even an an end process of constant evolution. Um, So those who clamor for authentic food are really just looking at it from the lens of nostalgia and what they had itself was possibly very inauthentic at that point of time. Ashok runs a wonderful little Instagram handle where he gives a lot of trivia related to food, myth busting and all that. And all of this in a very, very entertaining and lighthearted and dare I say even funny way. The book is delightful. Ashok's thinking is refreshing. So I thought he would be the perfect guest to have on, the perfect non-cooking person to talk about cooking uh, this week. So let's get into this right after this break. We had we had a fascinating conversation and I think you will find it delightful as well. Welcome to One Rep at a Time, a podcast from CultFit that encourages you to become a healthier, better and happier version of yourself by building small, sustainable habits. Let's welcome your host, Deepak Gopalakrishnan or Chuck. So Ashok, thank you for doing this with us. Uh, There are many ways to describe you, but I think Rohan Joshi said it best when he had you on his show, 30 Questions With, uh, when he said he's one of the few people worth following on Twitter and has an amazing ability to explain complex scientific concepts in a lucid Neil deGrasse Tyson-ish way that I enjoy. I think that's a great intro. So Ashok, welcome to One Rep at a Time. It's great to have you on. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Nice to meet you again. So um, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. And in fact, for listeners of the show who might be interested, I have a whole one and a half hour long interview with Ashok on my show, Getting Meta, where we spoke about so many things, creativity, habits, music, memes, of course, and so much more. But the one thing we never touched on uh, upon over there was your new appreciation for cooking. So uh, for context of this show and for my own personal interest, uh, tell us how that came about and how specifically the idea for your book, Masala Lab, uh, 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 based on which a lot of this conversation uh, we, uh, will be taken. Just tell us how that came about. Yeah, so funnily enough, cooking is the, is the one thing that I've actually been doing for a long time, uh, except that I uh, didn't get into talking about it on social media 
till maybe about say you know seven or eight years ago and so on. Um, but uh, I've been sort of cooking and taking down notes about sort of treating the kitchen as a laboratory for about you know twenty years now. Uh, and and so therefore I think when uh, when when I had a chat with Penguin about what book I should write, my mm-hmm. first suggestion was well you know steampunk science fiction <laughs> set in South India was was my first choice. Uh, uh, and then they said, no, you know, it's the pandemic. I think let's 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 stick to something nonfiction. Um, and then I said, okay, you know, the fastest thing that I can write on is food because I think it's uh, it's something that everyone does. A lot of people are taking interest. And you know, funnily enough, there was no book on the science of Indian cooking, um, and so it turned out to be good market research in that sense. So that's how uh, Masala Lab, the science of Indian cooking, came to be. That's wonderful. And I see that it's taken a life of its own now that you finally have an Instagram presence and uh, it's completely taken off on that track. And uh, to me, uh, as somebody who's followed your work for so long, it's so nice to see that there are two very distinct personalities almost. There's a Twitter, Krish Ashok, and then there is, of course, the Masala Lab or underscore Masala Lab on uh, Instagram, uh, which uh, two completely different, uh, uh, you know, tracks there. And I highly encourage people to follow uh, both, but uh, with context to this, at least uh, that also. One thing I like about your approach to cooking is something that you once said that you are interested in cooking the same way that you're interested in music. You're more interested in the craft of it. And I think that's a nice segue, a nice way to lead into mindful eating, something that we've tried to speak about on this show uh, before. Um, Being more aware of what it is that you're eating, listening to your body a little more and how that alone might be a healthier way, not just overdo it with the portions, etc. Any thoughts on this, especially as it applies to Indian food? Another way of asking this long-winded question is, uh, does knowing the science of cooking make you more mindful of what you eat? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it's uh, so when you consider that it's it only in the last five years that um, we have gotten far ahead of understanding what happens after you eat. Uh, yeah. I think there's, you know, uh, everyone has understood what happens kind of before uh, food science, industrial food scientists have always known they need to get food down to a precise craft and science so that, you know, you, your potato chip tastes exactly uh, same every time you make it. But what happens afterwards has been a one of the hardest things to understand. Uh, part of the reason why there is just so much nutritional pseudoscience um, and so many, you know, sort of get thin quick uh, or get fit quick, yeah. you know, uh, quack diets and so on is because we don't quite have a clear scientific understanding. You know, we both grew up at a time when, I, if you remember, fats used to be demonized. They are yeah. not anymore, yeah. right? Uh, and and now we kind of understand that the that the U.S. sugar lobby actually, you know, paid for research against fats to be uh, sort of, you know, positioned as being far worse of an enemy than sugars and, and so on. Um, and it's only now that we kind of understand even between in sugars, they're not all the same. There's, there is glucose. Fructose is far much of a problem. All of these are things that we understand only very, very recently, right? Um, and so one of the things that the pandemic did is that clearly it really taught people that uh, learning to cook your own food, for mm-hmm. starters, is is a useful thing. And not just outsourcing either to whoever is the you know woman of the house, if you will, uh, <laughs> or for that matter, Swiggy or Zomato or sure. you know, any sort of ordering thing um, is not sustainable on the longer run because you know you uh, the one thing that we understood about food coming from the outside, when, especially when you don't understand how it's made, is that if it's sweet, if it's salty, if it's fatty, uh, it'll taste delicious because we have you know two three million years of evolutionary wiring to absolutely crave to the point of us having little or no control. Right? You know you can talk about all the willpower etc. 
really, it's really, really hard. I mean, we are wired to crave those things. We are wired to crave high calorie things and so on. So it is just that once you start thinking about how you're making your food and, and also once you start not just mindlessly following recipes, but mm-hmm. really uh, understanding what role each plays. So if you understand what's happening to the fats in your food, which if you understand what's happening to the sugars, et cetera, I think you start to ask the right questions. So for example, you know, nothing happens to the fats in your food. So literally all the fats you use, it's just, it's just going to get consumed yeah. and they get broken down literally only in your intestine, right? Uh, the sugars, again, the starches, well, the more you cook them, you know, uh, they're going to get broken down into sugars ahead of time. Cooking is the outsourcing of digestion, right? <laughs> uh, and so how you think about it and how you put things together uh, determine its effect ultimately, you know, um, on, on, on how you eat it, right? So for example, uh, liquid calories are not the same as solid calories because your body, which is essentially a product of millions of years of evolutionary uh, time scale, and has, by the way, your brains and your, your cells have no clue that yeah. agriculture has been yeah. invented. Okay. So all of this happened very, very short. So they have no way of measuring calories in liquid food, right? So that's why general idea is avoid liquid calories because your, your intestine cannot count calories accurately enough and will still say that, oh, you're hungry. So I'm not going to turn turn on that hormone that then, you know, sort of, mm. you know, cuts off your, oh, you're feeling full uh, if you continue to consume liquid calories because your your body has no way of counting. So it's just that being mindful about these things um, really just makes you question why it is what you're doing and also therefore what's going in. Um, and then now research that now says that if you um, if you're just eating and looking at what you're eating, you're far more likely to eat less than if you're watching Netflix and eating. Because at that point, again, the same signaling mechanism breaks down, right? So if you're focused on what you're eating, uh, your body will signal when you're full, uh, when you're full. And if you're watching Netflix, if you're reading something, etc., it all seems very natural to us. Uh, but you're, you will likely miss that signal and continue mm. eating more than you are. And it's just that so this whole mindfulness is is comes from paying close attention. Um, and I think it's easy again um, to, to try and go to first principles rather than try to practice some kind of meditative mindfulness. Uh, because if you really pay a focus, when you're in the zone, when you're trying to learn something, you're naturally being mindful. Um, mm. And I think it's a natural corollary to sort of, you know, eating in a healthy way. Yeah, I think there's so much to unpack in that term. One sentence, but I'm going to start right at the beginning. What you said, like, uh, it's almost like uh, for anything that you, uh, it, it seems to me like there's a, a lot of uh, modern science or other pseudosciences, just SEO optimized. You search for is dash bad or is dash good, you will find some that say yes, some that say bad, uh, some that say no. Uh, it just yeah. seems that, uh, you know, there's just so much information out there and just understanding, like you said, going back to first principles can really just help. And that's one of the reasons why I and so many others uh, loved your book because it was, it was insightful and, dare I say, wildly entertaining at the same time. I often say that you should read Masala Lab just for the humor, if nothing else. And uh, yeah, I think uh, being a little more mindful of your food, I think is a great way of doing that. Another Another thing that you have very vocally spoken about on in your book on Instagram and even Twitter, much to the chagrin of many others who disagree with you, is your theory of quote-unquote authentic foods, right? And uh, your theory is broadly, and I'll leave you to elaborate on this, is that what we consider authentic food is just a replacement for nostalgia. Uh, one, could you elaborate on that a little bit? And two, any other such little heuristics like this for healthy, living, uh, healthy eating? Sure. See, I think so... Um, I- 
it's only the last five years that uh, there's this new emerging field of what's yeah. called neurogastronomy. Um, and, and, a, and a sort of parallel field, which is sort of uh, the neurogastronomy is at the center and around it is something called gastrophysics. Yeah. So gastrophysics is the kind of thing that a marketer, a food marketer would use in order to craft something that's going to be attractive to you. And so, by the way, that's gastrophysics is sort of like digital marketing. Yeah. So there's a lot of equivalent of SEO going on that oh, yeah. the food that is red in color is going to naturally taste sweeter and those kinds of things. Right. Um, so neurogastronomy is the base. It's sort of like the, the biology uh, and the, and the sort of the brain uh, biochemistry of how we process flavor right and and also in a sense uh, ultimately what happens uh, uh, as food goes in right so because we kind of think that we taste our food only with our tongues um, but when in reality you actually taste yeah. with your nose your tongue uh, your ears your eyes uh, and also the nervous system right uh, and and 80% of that effort is done by the nose yeah. right so which is why if you have you know if you have anosmia due to covid or a cold uh, food tastes bad right yeah. um, and because flavor is such a multi-dimensional experience, uh, if you look at, again, evolutionary biology is such a fascinating thing to understand lots of things that go yeah. wrong with us today. Uh, is that, uh, so if you imagine that cooking was such a centrally pivotal thing for human society, right? Because it's the outsourcing of digestion. Yeah. Uh, so a cow has to spend 60, 70% of all of the calories that it gains simply to digest the grass it <laughs> eats. Uh, but we, on the other hand, spend a much, much smaller percentage of the calories uh, in simply digesting the food that we eat, right? Which is why you say that the more resistant food you eat, you're going to use more calories simply yeah. just burning it. Like for example, so the idea of calories for protein and calories for carbs, they're not the same thing, okay? Uh, because protein takes a lot more calories simply to digest and break down than, you know, a processed, you know, uh, grain based starches, which are like so simple, they get to glucose very, very quickly and rapidly and so on. Right. So, so the interesting thing here is that our evolution essentially tells us that, that uh, as pre-cooking, we were eating raw food. We were eating either uh, raw animals and once a year, whenever we found fruits, Right when there was summer and you got access yeah. to fruits, um, and our addiction to sugar comes from the fact that those humans who gorged themselves on fruits without throwing up uh, essentially built a layer of fat that made them survive during winter. Because when they would be tough to hunt animals, it was snow, it was dark, and so on, so on. Right, um, and that's why today you know our fructose metabolism is different from glucose metabolism. Fructose metabolism is straight to fat. It it doesn't really, yeah. eating fruit juices does not give you energy. It's just straight to fat. Right. And now endocrinologists are saying, please don't drink fruit juices. Please eat the fruit. Don't eat, don't eat the fruit juices. That's not what we were evolved to do. Right. And so the interesting thing is that once we started cooking, right. Um, and essentially our brains grew bigger because now we had a lot more energy uh, and all of that went into brain development and so on. Uh, so what happens is that, uh, our food starts becoming more sophisticated. It has mm. more aromas. It has more tastes and textures, unlike what you're able, what you'll find in a purely uncooked food diet and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have enough time to evolve a part of the brain that deals with that. Right? And so the brain does what it does best. Jugad, let's, let's figure out, let's repurpose existing things. And the part of the brain that was chosen to do this is the part of the brain that deals with memories and nostalgia because nostalgia and memories are multidimensional and flavor is multidimensional. Right. So here's the insightful thing that people find it hard to believe is that you don't remember aroma, taste, texture, acidity, sourness, 
the crunch of the sound that's not the only thing you remember yeah. you also remember your mood who was serving you the food the location the setting and all everything. of those things are part yeah. of yeah all, yeah all of that is part of your flavor memories so essentially i i when i when i tell people and they find it so hard to believe that when you say you didn't like that pani puri all you're actually saying is that that particular experience of pani puri does not exactly match which with with your previous experiences it does not say anything else it's not an objective analysis of the mm. pani puri at all and that is why it is impossible to be objective about food because everybody saying oh this is overrated that's bad this is authentic that's not authentic this is this all they're saying is that it doesn't taste like what i'm used to it tasting like right and the reality is that ingredients change all the time right 70% of every ingredient used in indian cooking today didn't exist 300 years ago they were all introduced by the portuguese the british and and you know traders uh and you know even a bulk of our spices some of these uh, nutmeg and these spices came from indonesia right idli the idea of steaming came from southeast asia right uh you have a whole so indian cooking particularly has changed constantly uh my grandmother would w- grew up at a time when the idea of a carrot or a tomato in sambar was not a thing because they were considered english vegetables right uh, but once she moved to a town uh, where the british were around and you know you had all of these uh, vegetables available uh, their people adapted right now nobody will say that a sambar with a carrot is not authentic sambar yeah. it's ridiculous everybody sambar is either entirely authentic to the people who are eating it or nothing is authentic so you decide right so uh, that's the whole idea fantastic i i mean uh <laughs> you brought it back I, I, it's 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 amazing right how much is so uh, and we often joke on this podcast uh, before uh, we often have offline conversations saying that the entire show is basically just how to adapt to evolution in some sense or how we are still like uh, there's just yeah. so many evolutionary hangovers in some sense that we uh, still sort of have so this show is really focused on small uh, 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 the way we started this is uh, the, the mission for the show really was um mission statement if you will small sustainable changes to become healthier and happier and we come to realize that nutrition plays a massive role in any fitness program weight loss or otherwise so let's if you were to take off from there what are some good kitchen habits that people can inculcate especially in indian sitting uh, setting if they want to be fitter i know we'll spend a lot of time on this so just feel free to start off anywhere and we'll branch off yeah so i would maybe start off with i guess maybe my i would say uh top 5 things that you can kind of slowly get into Mm-hmm. uh uh that are backed by science uh, uh maybe this is it could turn out to be six things anyway i will sure. see you know we'll see as it goes right uh and and again no particular order but these yeah. are all pretty impactful all right um uh, first is pay attention to where your fructose is coming from okay uh, pay attention and try and reduce it it's hard to make it zero because we all love fruits mm-hmm. uh and uh and uh and, and it's very odd to tell people that you must not eat fruits but actually that's not the right thing to say the idea is to say uh, avoid eating very very sweet over ripe fruits so mm-hmm. go easy on the mangoes and bananas but go to town on the guavas uh, and fruits uh, that are more sour and less fruit uh, less sort of sweet mm-hmm. because that sweetness comes from fructose uh, and absolutely please get rid of fruit juices just get rid of that i mean that's just a bad thing uh, we're not used to that at all fruit juices are a product only when we had like you know machines that was able to remove all of the fiber all the good stuff in the fruits and just give you all the bad stuff is when we started having fruit juices so, so please skip that orange juice uh, and then eat the orange directly uh, that's actually a lot better right uh, the second thing is remember how your body 
process is starch, right? Um, starches are essentially long chains of glucose molecules, okay? Uh, and if you eat the glucose directly, it's just instant energy, yeah. right? So your blood blood sugar will spike rapidly, instantly. It's like sort of, you know, uh, eating like a packet of glucon D, for example, yeah. right? So that's just, or, or a packet of white sugar, which is 50% glucose and 50% fructose. So remember where your fructose comes from, right? Um, and in fact, I have seen endocrinologists say, those were really dead serious. Consider sweetening your morning tea. If you cannot eat tea without sugar, sweeten it with glucon D and not with white sugar because glucon D is just pure glucose and that's still better as opposed to 50% glucose and fructose. Mm. And remember that jaggery is again, mostly fructose and glucose. It's all sugar. Honey is mostly fructose. Many things that are not white sugar are still, are still glucose and fructose. And, and I, ideally reduce them as much as possible, right? Uh, the, so the point number two about resistance starches is, so there's a grade of things like say uh, a rice or wheat uh, will get broken down pretty quickly uh, because our bodies are very good at breaking it down. So right from the saliva, we have salivary amylase. If you chew on rice or potato or anything enough in your mouth, it will start to taste sweet because it's getting broken down into glucose in your mouth itself, right? Uh, proteins on the other hand, etc., take a long time mm. to get broken down. And likewise, uh, but if you try and chew on dal or rajma or chana in your mouth, although they're also 50% starch, uh, they will not taste sweet because they are made up of a slightly different structure and, and they're called resistant starches, right? Um, and these are actually a few combinations of glucose molecules that are tougher to break down. In fact, things like rajma, etc., have uh, kinds of resistant starch that we cannot digest at all. Okay. So yeah, amylose and... Uh, Amylopectin, we can digest. Raffinose and stachyose are other starch molecules we cannot digest. So they go straight through and they go to feed only the bacteria, gut bacteria, and mm-hmm. that's it, right? So the reason you get feel uncomfortable and sort of, you know, flatulent when you eat rajma, beans, and so on is it's essentially the, the bacteria are essentially burping, right? So they are eating and they're breaking it down yeah. into carbon dioxide and you're literally feeding them. And that's a good thing, right? So feeding your gut bacteria is insanely healthy. And a lot of science now says that the more you feed your gut bacteria, uh, a lot of long-term health outcomes, you know, uh, long-term, you know, reduction in risks of cancer, uh, you know, all these good things happen. If you essentially uh, shift your diet away from uh, sort of uh, processed grains, you know, white polished rice, uh, refined starches like uh, maida, atta, et cetera, uh, and, and then sort of go towards ones that have more resistant starch, right? Now, people immediately say, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to completely stop maida and only eat atta. The difference is not that much, okay? Atta has a little bit of fiber, but it's still very, very easy mm-hmm. to digest starch. You want to make a difference, go to millets, uh, go to things like quinoa yeah. if you can afford it, uh, if it's practical and sustainable, and only, only pick things that you can afford. Uh, but again, you know what? Go la- go large on the portions of dal and a little bit of less of that rice is a sustainable way. And yeah. by the way, go to town on the ghee, okay? Uh, because ghee, by the way, the fats will reduce the rate at which uh, blood sugar spikes, right? So here's the funny thing. Uh, you want to choose between the white bread and a croissant, go for the croissant because the layers of butter will slow down sugar spikes and that's much, much better, okay? So I know this sounds very odd, but yeah. doctors now say, go for the croissant, skip the white bread, okay? So this is not something we would have heard like, you know, uh, uh, five, you know even uh, two or three years ago, yeah. right? So that's resistant starch. Third thing is, uh, part of Michael Pollan's advice, the last one, eat as little as possible, as little as possibly uh, can. We are all eating way more, you know, than we need, right? Uh, and so 
there are many ways i think i can talk to your nutritionist you know don't don't read random you know uh, blogs and uh, inspirational vlogs on instagram or for that matter listen only to people like me because i'm not a trained nutritionist talk yeah. to your doctor because intermittent fasting is a great way to achieve amazing health benefits if you just simply eat less right and again you have to you can't just jump into it everybody is different so sometimes people just start with a 12 hour thing where they finish dinner by 8 pm and then they eat breakfast only at 8 am so yeah. they gave a 12 hour break and then slowly move that breakfast up to you know 13 14 15 and ultimately if you get to 16 hours you're giving yourself at least 2 yeah. hours of ketosis which is where you know um, and and again it's it's a lot of science i don't want to get into it here but in general getting your body into ketosis is very very good it's good for your brain uh, ketone ketone bodies are better fuel than glucose so your brain is sharper uh, i think i ever since i've been intermittent fasting i find myself when i wake up in the morning till when i eat lunch at about 12 i am super sharp and productive because uh, your brain is also is now saying oh you know what i am starved of energy i am going to focus it on whatever it is you want to do not get distracted in in all these other expensive uh, things and so on right so i think it's uh, it's there is so in that sense uh, in one way to appeal to indians is to say just look at people even in the past who used to do meditation and fasting and so on you often find that one they have sort of a glow in their face because they have great skin because once you get to autophagy uh, your body is literally eating all of the uh, dead cells the yeah. bad cells the cancerous cells and so on and and se second thing you know a lot of these religious enlightenment is often associated with fasting so uh, so yes so clearly there is there is you know it's easy to appeal to people's sort of religious ideas and say look you know what all those wise people well, they're wise because they didn't eat much. So you might want to consider eating less in general, right? Um, then obviously, I think is um, uh, Indian vegetarians particularly, I think, do not pay attention to the amount of protein they get. They just simply wildly assume dal is is all the protein they need. It often is not. Um, yes, you, you can absolutely have a vegan diet that gets you all the protein you need, but you have to pay special attention, okay? Um, not all the essential amino acids are there in plant protein, uh, and you do have to work hard. You have to get pea protein, soy protein, and a bunch of other things to make sure that you're getting it. But if you do have dairy products, by all means, you know, you are consuming animal protein, so you can get there, but pay attention. Uh, pay attention to how much protein you're getting. You're probably overestimating the amount of protein you're getting, if especially if you're vegetarian. Uh, and so it's, you know, it is, it is good to kind of uh, pay attention. And the last thing is, um, stop paying attention to fat and start paying more attention to the number of carbohydrates you're eating right um, if anything actually you can and and don't don't bother between omega 6 omega 3 saturated mm -hmm. go to town on whatever it is your grandparents ate if you're from kerala absolutely enjoy coconut uh, uh, you know uh, coconut oil because a lot of kerala food cooked in not cooked in coconut oil tastes terrible okay you might as well just cook it in punjabi food taste in extra virgin olive oil is ridiculous okay so just just eat it with the ghee and eat it with the with the fats that it was that it's been used to being cooked in uh, and and again fat actually slows down carbohydrate uh, uh, spiking blood glucose and there is little or no evidence uh, that the dietary cholesterol causes bad cholesterol in your body mm -hmm. okay bad cholesterol in your body is produced ultimately there are many pathways and one of those pathways is fructose okay so that's now the new research so don't don't worry too much again moderation is key i think you must eat as uh, less of everything as possible but in the little you're eating don't pay too much attention to fats I think more fats makes it more delicious. And I think it also makes it easier to uh, diversify your diet. Right? If you don't like millets, right? you don't like that cardboardy taste, I'm sure you love millets doused in ghee. <laughs> 
because it's delicious. So, and that's a good way to eat millets if you don't like millets. So I think, you know, these are just some of the broad things that I kind of have, you know, discovered. And, and mind you, remember, always talk to your nutritionist, talk to a doctor, don't make random hard to sustain changes. Habit forming is as important as anything else. Yeah. And don't trust any single person, verify stuff. And remember the science keeps changing all the time. So don't just, you know, believe one thing and say, Oh, this is, this is, that's it. I'm done. And so on. Um, and listen and watch your body and you'll see results. And I think, you know, it's good to keep, you know, getting yourself tested, uh, do health checkups once in a while to kind of get, be very data driven. Amazing. Like, uh, it's almost like I have no further questions to ask because everything you said pretty much covers everything. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a lot in there. And, uh, and if you are listening to the show, uh, I think it's worth uh, going back and just re-listening to that entire answer all over again, because there's a lot of wisdom packed uh, in there. I want to pick off on that one thing that you said about uh, Kerala cooking, etc. And uh, maybe it's on a slightly different tack. So there's a line of thinking that because we are Indians, our dietary requirements are different from that of the West. Like, so all these things like avocado <laughs> salads and all uh, won't work over here for our body. How how true is this? How uh, true do you think this is? So the problem is that um, one of the bad things about the internet and, and you know, you're, you're, you, are, you are an expert in this as, as a marketing person yourself, is that on the one hand, it gives you access to every bit of knowledge around the world. Yeah. Uh, but I think at the same time, the problem also is that it gives you access, you access to every to bit of knowledge in the world. Yeah. And because I think a, a lot of a lot of knowledge becomes wisdom only when people have a sense of statistics, have a sense of what are things like confidence intervals, yeah. uh, and how science needs to be interpreted and prior and therefore priorities, right? Um, so so people often it's it's sort of like you know it's like the whole jaggery white sugar thing yeah jaggery is 95% the same thing as white sugar but people give an unnecessary importance to that 5% which is very small by the way mm -hmm. and they say oh that it has iron boss to get the daily dietary amount of uh, iron you have to eat 100 grams of jaggery that 100 grams of jaggery is really bad yeah. for you okay because you're getting like a tiny amount of iron so so I, I think part of the problem with the internet is that you just end up getting a lot of information and you pay. Uh, so the same thing is true here. It is pretty evident that there are clearly genetic variations across individuals and families. And in fact, I would say in India is particularly unique because of the, again, the Hindu caste system. We are, we are not a very big slot, at least for the last 2000 years, because of endogamous marrying habits, right? So every sub-community has its own genetic profile. Okay. So some people will be like very, very prone to diabetes in one family and mm. then it'll completely, you know, they all, they'll all be perfectly fine, but they're far more likely to have diabetes and some will have like Alzheimer's, some will have other things. And again, some, some, some people will live up, live up to hundred and all that. So one is that we are, we are diverse and yet in a sense, weirdly not diverse because we don't intermarry at least for most of the last 2000 years. Right. Um, that's what the genetic profile tells mm. us. So there is clearly variations, etc. Now, the second thing there is that, yes, it is also true that individuals respond differently to different foods. Uh, you know, you've seen, you've seen these, you know, Japanese women who live up to 130, right? You know, they, they smoke and they eat, uh, you know, all kinds of things that you would consider unhealthy. But, you know, it's again, bunch of genes, a bunch of other things. Um, and also in the case of women, particularly a crucial thing for longevity is not having children. So, so I think that all the longest lived women in the world are all women who never married. Okay, so that's a, it says something about men. So, but uh, so so the interesting thing is that uh, it is partially and in in a sense the statement that each community, each sub community, geographical region uh, 
will is used to certain kinds of food and therefore they respond to it different and foreign foods may not necessarily be uh, right for them is the problem with a statement like that is that it it breaks down in the details okay um and it misses the point that it doesn't matter and avocado uh is chemically and biochemically not very different from what we eat in other forms sure. okay? so avocado is is again a lot of good fat uh and a little bit of protein and and uh, sugars so you take a bunch of fruits and if you are you know maybe you take let's just theory so so let's take palamburi okay right so if the the banana is not too sweet and you're like frying it in oil and you're eating that nutritionally you're getting something not too different from the avocado okay so okay. so i think where it happens is that sometimes at the building blocks level it's not as foreign as you think it's not like oh i i cannot eat uh, avocados at that level no and by the way butter fruit is common in yeah. it's been grown in india for a while and people have been eating these those kinds of fruits it's not such a different thing and so on um and likewise all fats are more or less largely the same uh, the, the the there may be variations in the amount of uh, saturated unsaturated uh, where whether it's omega 6 omega 3 and so on uh but if you tell me that oh no my entire community we we our stomach will get upset if we eat uh, mustard oil versus go groundnut oil flies in the face of the fact that no at that point all fats are the same okay the aromas vary from a very tiny amount of stuff that is statistically insignificant right you, you again mm. it's your nostalgia yeah. and that smell getting in the way and biasing you to say that no it's not for me okay uh but the reality is it isn't so indians are not special so i think I, the first thing i often ask people is that people will ask me is it okay to cook uh, 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 dairy and fish together because ayurveda says it's not and the answer is very simple um just look around in india and see are there places where people cook fish and dairy um and they generally don't die uh, as soon as they do that and they seem to be reasonably healthy and if the answer is yes maybe you have to reevaluate that that mm. particular rule and again with due respect uh people who came up with these heuristics came up came up with them at a time when there was no refrigeration there was sure. no global supply chain there was no all of these other preservatives no medicines uh, none of these all these other no no vaccinations and all of that so their way of looking at life their way of looking at food was essentially a very dangerous thing is the only foreign object that you willingly put into yourself yeah. and very likely to kill you if it is if it was left outside at room temperature in tropical south india for more than 5 minutes okay so that's the world that's the zero risk appetite world that all these rules were made and you have to rewrite those rules for the world where there is refrigeration and freezing and all those other things right uh, which is why i often often tell people your grandmother's heuristics about when the rice gets cooked yeah. and how it's going to be tasty and how something is going to be crispy is perfectly grounded in observational science okay but a lot smaller number of the health and nutrition hacks of the past kind of passed the modern smell test because they were designed for a time when many of these conditions were different on the other hand cooking and flavor that hasn't changed right so so i think you know that's what i would say so there yeah. is really not as much difference yeah. lovely it's like uh, deep down everybody is the same applies to food as much as it does to humans i'd like to think um this is a disney movie uh, right there for the making all right so um, next question i have for you ashok so uh, is one more on uh, practicality so uh, most people would want to cook more knowing that is the healthier option than ordering out every day or every other day uh but sometimes it might not be convenient for them to do so so how do you think cooking can be made simpler or 
let me call this um say how do you achieve economies of scale at home like is there something you can cook in bulk and then refrigerate um and then reuse over the course of the week anything like that uh, yeah. that you could help with i think that's a great question because it sort of segues perfectly from the ending of what we spoke about in the yeah. previous question which is that uh people carry a lot of baggage of what is safe what is not safe what mm. is good what is unhealthy etc uh based on theories that were formulated at a time when there were no refrigeration no gas cylinders uh people were cooking on wood smoke and things would rot um and all kinds of other things right um and so i think the first uh mental this thing that you have to get past is to realize that you have to think about modern day cooking as from what people were doing 2000 years ago okay um that it's possible today uh to prep ahead of time and refrigerate ingredients okay mm. uh you can cook vegetables ahead of time as long as you put them you know in an airtight reasonably airtight thing they're going to stay fresh at least for 12 13 hours i think you'd be fine uh and uh, the degradation and nutrition is little or nothing um it, since you have a freezer you can actually make parts of uh, dishes like base gravies right so you can you can theoretically take you know onions tomatoes uh, garlic and spices uh, and cook them in butter and puree them and create this red red thing yeah. that you can then freeze uh, and then you can make a butter chicken or a, a mutter or or any mutter paneer or whatever it is in no time in like 5 minutes right so the whole idea is that cooking anything from scratch is very tough yeah. um, and we live under this indians live under this bias that no no every meal must be cooked from scratch okay which is again a fair point because in a world when you assume that some woman will cook it for you uh, you know those those ideas are there but if you are serious about cooking yourself you have to prep ahead right uh, the average indian woman spends 5 and a half hours in the kitchen the average american woman spends half an hour in the kitchen this is a huge, huge gaping void and this and you cannot be spending 5 and a half hours in the kitchen um it's not sustainable so you've got a target how can i spend 1 hour in the kitchen so you got to prep ahead it's perfectly fine you go to freeze ingredients freeze partially cooked ingredients right um uh, you've got to realize for instance that frozen vegetables in many situations are fresher than fresh vegetables wow. right it's a, it's it's an entire it's a common misconception uh fresh so double quotes fresh vegetables in your urban supermarkets were harvested months ago weeks and months ago when they were unripe so that they can uh, uh, survive the transportation and logistics uh, and are you know sort of you know then have to be waxed and so that because they are uh, subject to heavy lighting and all kinds of other oxidative uh, stresses and so on uh, and and so therefore they are nutritionally subpar and they are not fresh at all uh, whereas a frozen carrot was actually frozen a few hours after it was harvested perfectly right because once something is at minus 15 celsius biological activity and therefore time stops so a frozen carrot is as for about 5 hours fresh in the sense of having been dug from the ground an actual fresh carrot you buy in the store is 6 to 7 weeks old okay so so this is this is something that people have to realize and again it's just people have this belief that no 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 frozen it that tastes no no mm. by the way um it's it's all psychological blind taste test always <laughs> no very few people even experts would fail a blind taste test between food made from frozen carrots and fresh carrots right and so that's the way it is i think you've got to learn to trust frozen food uh, learn to trust uh, and in in some cases you know even keep uh, by by all means by sort of par cooked gravies uh, partially cooked uh, yeah. you know food that you can reheat and eat once in a while as a part of a diverse diet you know as long as you're eating less feel 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 free to eat anything you want 
That's the whole point, right? Don't have to sweat around. I will not eat anything without maida. I will not. That that is just yeah. a silly way to go about life. Single ingredients don't matter. In on aggregate, is is really how you need to think about this and so on. So and use all the devices you can. Get yourself things like air fryers, which make life so much easier. Get yourself uh, things like an immersion blender that allows you to turn. any disastrous dish into a soup because you know you know then you can adjust salt add water you know then you make it a soup it will be really delicious okay so so the point is that there are a couple of devices that you know i i there is a list in the book of absolute must have devices for the modern a spice grinder that will allow you to buy whole spices and not have these spice dabbas that then go yeah. turn into sand okay Uh, uh, oxidate, you know, uh, being oxidized, you know, in your in your kitchen. If you want to store spice powder, store them in the freezer. So I, I think there are just so many things that people can do to cut down the amount of time that they spend, right? Um, and you know, I think one, one on a slight aside, people, a common question I get asked is, how do you do so many things? You have an IT job, you do music, you do cooking, you do all of this stuff, etc. And I often tell them that I'm effectively doing the exact same thing. Okay, I'm essentially doing software engineering, no matter whether I'm doing music or I'm doing cooking. The idea is to break things down into absolutely uh, smaller and smaller things, some of which can be automated, outsourced. Uh, and the idea is that any anything that I do, uh, each individual piece has to be doable by someone with no skills, right? And that's 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 the that's the entire success of the Indian IT industry, right? The idea of using QA and automation to essentially take a college fresher. to write source code for a giant fortune yeah. 500 company uh, seems you know it's easy to joke but that's but it's the same approach that i take to music small small pieces i don't have to play a two minute solo i have to play a two second loop um, and then i can fine tune it and edit it till it's absolutely right and then i will you know build use those lego bricks to make my music um, and that's the same thing with cooking uh, and i think if you optimize it uh, and you have an opportunity to have better prefabricated lego bricks in your fridge uh, i think you're going to be far better off fantastic processes over outcomes in uh, yep. in some way absolutely i think um, that's fantastic there's so much in there and yeah like you said the book has uh, uh, all these and uh, way more do i say dare i say um the last couple of things then over here and this is something that i'm sh- that we have spoken about many times in with other contexts which is misinformation uh, is something that's rife and food misinformation is no less we've spoken it uh, spoke, spoken about it already on the show uh, some things that get marketed to us as healthy unnecessarily so there are like loads of examples and actually i for, rather than list them out over here i uh, implore people to go and check out ashok's instagram where he's actually broken down so many of these um but at a more first principles level what can people do to keep themselves aware and safe from mood uh, from food misinformation and let's say overzealous marketers yeah i, I think in general i don't marketers may hate this hate me for this but when it comes to food um uh, if it has to be marketed as healthy it probably is not um it, uh, let me just say that it's a it's a very straightforward heuristic for consumers okay? mm-hmm. um, so at the rate, way it's different uh, from say uh an air conditioner marketing itself as you know hey sustainable by the way uh, it it will you know it will save you this much energy etc those are things that are easily measurable yeah. uh but health claims on food are very very hard to measure um and and because nutrition is so hard to understand so so in in general i think you know michael pollan's advice that as much as possible when you can if it has to come out of a packet it's not mm. true okay so it has to come from an animal uh or it has to come from a plant okay and and the closer you are to the animal and the plant the better as much as possible i'm not saying you you know you have to go hunt your own animals and skin the animal and so on which i think is probably taking it too far but be as close as you possibly mm. can which means 
I take the effort to find a, a farm where where you know the cows that are being built, if you can, if you can afford it, right? Uh, find a local butcher who is able, who, where you know where how the animals uh, are being slaughtered and, and and where the animals come from and so on. Um, and by, uh, sort of find out where the rice you're growing was grown and how it was grown, where pesticides used, uh, did it spend how many months did it spend in a warehouse? Uh, that knowledge, I think, is 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 a good way to really think about many of these things because uh, at the end of the day. All we have uh, is this idea that that the closer our diets are to to what our great grandmothers ate, uh, you're f- probably likely in a better place. Purely from the point of view, as we don't know what we don't know, okay? mm-hmm. we don't quite know what is the impact of eating, like you know, twelve or you know whatever it is, the number of teaspoons of sugar in one beverage of some yeah. kind, you know, one ca- carbonated beverage of any company or fruit juice for that matter. Right? We don't know. We've never have had a history of, uh, of, of understanding that with data, but we know reasonably sure that the food that our great grandmothers cooked um, largely will not kill you. Let's just say that. I'm yeah. not saying it's like, Oh, it's healthy. It's amazing. We know it won't kill you. Right. And so therefore try and get, understand where your food comes from um, and, and, and try and as much as possible, anything that comes out of a packet, probably not food and try and reduce it. Sometimes again, practicality, you might yeah. want to buy spice powders. I can understand. Uh, but as much as a simple principle that, that you can perhaps use um, to really kind of uh, uh, do that. Right. So I, as I said, it go, goes back to the first thing, being mindful about every little source. Where did your food come from? How was it grown? Who grew it? Um, how long, how, how much processing did it take before it was edible for you? Mm. Right. Or, or is it, is it edible with little or no processing? In some cases, it's unavoidable. Rice and wheat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, it's they are not edible without processing. Period. Okay. Then question is how much processing, uh, and and so on, right? Uh, and then again, uh, again, do you need a giant conglomerate to be able to feed you, or can you buy from a small farmer or not? Right? Is again another way to ask mm. yourself that question. I'm not saying you have to buy the artisanal, organic, expensive, uh, sure. you know, sustainable uh, uh, BS and all that. The last, last, last but not the least. Uh, don't trust the claims. Like, look at the ingredient list. Okay, um, it it makes it is important because uh, as a human being, this is the only foreign substance that you put into your body willingly every day. Uh, you know, sometimes two to three times a day. Right? You ought to know what's going in. Right? And up, remember those very simple principles. Is it is it refined starch? Right? Uh, and by the way, is the company sneaking in sugar through twenty other means by fooling me? Right, they'll call it maltodextrin. It's mm. still sugar. Okay, right. Uh, they'll call it dextrose or something like that. No, it's still sugar. Right. They'll say agave syrup, still sugar. sugar. Jaggery, still sugar. Honey is still sugar. Fruit syrup or whatever it is, still sugar. Uh, and all that. Right. Uh, hydrogenated, you know, palm palm oil and and, yeah. and those kinds of things. Understand where your fats. How are they coming? How are they processed? What are the things that are that are added purely for shelf stability? And try and see how little of that you can try and yeah. consume. So be it sodium benzoate or you know a sodium metabisulfide, all of these bunch of things, etc. And again, India, Indian labeling laws are not exactly very clear. Sometimes people can get away with very tricky labeling. Um, you know, I have a post that kind of tells you the thirty words that companies will use for to to yeah. for sugar, right? And again, always don't trust the label when it says fat free. Okay, you're immediately thinking, ah, that Healthy. sounds nice. Fat free almost always means more sugar. Okay, yeah. and a bunch of other things uh, in order to give the same mouthfeel. Okay, and the only thing alternative your brain will accept for fat is sugars. Okay, it will accept nothing else. 
and so that's bad for you you might as well eat the the fatty one okay uh, and so on. so i think it's always go beyond the label understand these ingredients it's not that hard uh, you don't have to memorize every single yeah. thing just understand boss all this is sugar all this is fat all this is protein these are all purely preservatives um, and uh, i understand why they're there but i'm going to try and reduce you know what i consume and and so on and then you know pay attention to some ingredients which i think at least what pay attention to what the european union um, and, and the us are starting to ban right and sometimes That's countries in, in, yeah. yeah they 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 will will continue to use it for a year so you might as well be informed about those things. that's all the yeah. rest yeah it's fantastic i remember coming across a site long back which uh, you would input a food and then it will tell you whether it's uh, uh, healthy or not or uh, something of that sort and uh, one standard answer for something that's outside the database the default message as it were uh, was yeah. we are still working on this but if you need to ask it's probably not healthy and i yeah. think that's a great default answer to have because who's ever going to ask hey is this cucumber healthy or not uh, i think it's yeah. fantastic and uh, yeah looking at the eu and us in terms of what they're doing uh, um, not just for food but also for tech regulation i guess a lot that's uh, uh, could yeah. be said in parallel no, so as 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 nasim nicholas talib says that sometimes people have a tendency to trust a poorly written scientific paper with badly sampled data that came last yeah. year and ignore 2000 years of test of time driven heuristic knowledge okay brilliant remember yeah. that right yeah Yeah, brilliant. All right, last question then, uh, Ashok. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on this show, uh, slightly dissing uh, the sweet stuff, uh, but unfortunately, uh, till our evolution catches up, uh, we are always going to have a sweet tooth. So, what would you advise for people who have that post-dinner craving for something sweet? So, um, uh, we all crave sweets, um, and as I said, I think it's it's also bad if you deny yourself, um, and then you're going to continue to crave it, and you'll somehow your brain will figure out a way for you to gorge on it somewhere else, yeah. and you'll end up doing damage to yourself anyway. So you uh, might as well do it mindfully, right? Mm. Uh, and so you can take a couple of you know small things, right? So one is uh, uh, try and obviously one is again consider sweetening your morning tea with uh, glucon tea, for example. It's a good way to get rid of uh, fructose there, right? Uh, a couple of other uh, 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 neurogastronomy hacks you could use. Uh, so because our eyes play a, a crucial role in flavor perception, uh, drinking your uh, cup of tea from a red mug. Okay, interesting. Uh, makes the makes the tea taste sweeter than it actually is because our eyes associate red with ripe fruits and it will dash. So colors have have uh, flavor. This thing. So anything in green uh, tastes more bitter than it needs to be uh, uh, because we leaves etc. Plants are source of bitterness and so on. Right, uh, red is sweet. Uh, red, yellow, etc., tend to be sweet, and so they have. We have these flavor associations. So, get get yourself a red, you know, a mug, and then you can get away by adding a little bit less sugar, and you will find that oh, perhaps the red color is compensating for a little of that. Uh, other things include that there are also ingredients um, like in the context of again, this varies by country. In India, uh, saffron, which is expensive, uh, cardamom, still expensive but not as bad as saffron, uh, and things like vanilla, particularly. I know real vanilla is expensive, and essence is fine too. There are ingredients that our brains always associate with sweetness, meaning that. You are you won't find the dal makhani with vanilla flavor. That's my point, right? <laughs> vanilla is always in ice cream, always in yeah. in this etc. But vanilla by itself is not sweet. Okay. So therefore, you can have desserts uh, add a little bit of vanilla flavor will allow you to make that dessert with a little bit less sugar. Amazing, because your brain will fill in the blanks and say, "Oh, vanilla, this must be sweet." 
elaichi oh this must be masala chai and cardamom is always in kheer and firni and all of that so it is must be sweet same thing with saffron because we associate with 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 sweetness and so on so i think there are ways of using ingredients that are not sweet but are neurogastronomically associated with sugar as ways of reducing uh, sugar consumption uh, and so on and last but not the least i think if you understand that jaggery honey and all these other things are also sugar uh, you'll resist the temptation to say as long as i'm eating jaggery i can eat whatever i want okay treat everything as sugar and treat everything in in that kind of moderation and and again i think you know i have uh, what i have often found works uh, is that uh, so i sort of do a you know 3 to 4 kilometer run every day right uh, and often the the rule is very simple if i do that 4 kilometer run uh, then i say well then my reward is 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 that desert at the mm, end of the mm, meal mm. and on days i i am not able to do it then i and i I've, i've trained myself say at least for a couple of weeks that i don't eat that desert right so what happens is in what how your brain works is that it'll say oh i'm really looking forward to that uh, one ice cream that's in the fridge so i'm going to go for my run today so so in a way you can actually use it to your advantage you consume that sugar but then you treat it as a reward for some good activity that yeah. you can then train yourself to do and then you create a like a pavlovian sort of loop where you say oh no dessert and then you look forward while you're running you're looking forward to that you know ice cream that you're going to eat at the end of your meal after you come back right so that those are ways in which you can hack your brain to do that yeah this is fantastic uh, ashok this has been great thanks so much for this if i may ask like uh, the book was a hit the instagram account is now taking a life of its own what's next for masala lab Oh, it's, oh, yeah, hard to. Uh, I mean, well, you know, there's a. Uh, we're working on a sort of a more uh, a, a plusher hardcover edition with more illustrations and so Wonderful. on. Wonderful. So I think there's there's that, and then well, you know, a couple of other uh, books in the pipeline. Where I, at this point, I'm not at liberty to talk about them, but there are a couple of things sort of that kind of take the whole uh, humorous science approach, uh, but but perhaps take a, a bigger view, not just the in the kitchen view, but you know, yeah. maybe a broader view of where your food comes from, where it came from, the history, and all of those things. Fabulous, and whatever it is, we will look forward to it. Ashok, thanks so much for this. It's been great. Thank you. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed uh, being able to. you know just host it and hear the answers first hand all of ashok's details are in the show notes of this episode or uh, the description if you're watching this on youtube and yeah that's pretty much about it hope this uh, episode and and i hope this week really has uh, helped you think about food a little differently a little more mindfully and yeah that's pretty much about it and this wraps up a whole Wow, 7 weeks of this podcast would love to know what you guys think not just about this episode but the show as a whole details as always in the show notes and I will be back in your ears well next week see you guys and this is Deepak aka Chuck signing off for one rep at a time by Cultfit see you guys You've been listening to One Rep at a Time by Cultfit. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for sustainable weight loss coaching, check out the Cult Transform program on the Cultfit app or website. See you on the next episode.